Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're admiring the utter radness of upstart Sienna Blaze because the title demands it and because she and I used to have the same haircut. Excalibur number 72, <laughs> Oh Sienna, was originally published in December 1993. And the creative team is Richard Ashford on writing, Ken Lashley on pencils, Randy Elliott and Cam Smith on inks, Pat Garrahy on colors, Chris Matthews and Pat Brosseau on letters and Susan Gaffney on editing. And that's why I believe the DNA evidence had been tampered with. And that's when I tampered with the DNA evidence. The DNA evidence was gone. Did you find the DNA evidence? I'll have that DNA evidence on your desk by five. DNA evidence. <laughs> The team has moved into Muir Island, and we hope Moira McTaggart's chairs survived the experience. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I am a person who talks about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture in academic places and wherever the internet will have me, which is most often at Sequential Scholars with Andrew, where we, but mostly Andrew, are currently working on some threads about classic Teen Titans. Watch out for that. I'm also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I can confirm Kurt is physically, emotionally, and philosophically unable to occupy a chair in a quote-unquote normal fashion. This issue gets that exactly right. Um, I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please reintroduce us to your reality. I, I can't because I'm, I'm very busy playing Beat Saber. So, so I've got this <laughs> Oculus Quest, which is like a, a, like a VR um, headset <laughs> video game thing that I use pretty much exclusively to play Beat Saber, which is a game that you, it's a VR game that you yeah, you have a lightsaber and you and you know you, you slice musical notes and that's that's what I'm gonna do because I bought it because I wanted to play you know video games and what I didn't do is just like invent VR to save my son and then my son dies and I'm like let me just use this on my friends mm-hmm. that's that because that would be a choice um <laughs> a choice that happens in this book and it's just thrown away like it's not the creepiest thing ever so I'm I'm looking forward to talking about that <laughs> <laughs> but other than that. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I'm... Um, Dr. Christopher Maverick. I, yeah, so bad at that. You got it, you got it. <laughs> yes, I, guess, I guess I'm Dr. Christopher... It's, it's, it doesn't flow. Like, I, I also, like, I have my students say Professor Christopher Maverick rather than Dr. Or I, I, they say Professor Mav rather than Dr. Mav. Dr. Mav sounds like a like a really bad soft drink, like a knockoff <laughs> or something. So I, don't, I don't love it. 
<laughs> but anyway, yeah, I'm a teaching professor of digital narrative and interactive design at University of Pittsburgh, co-host of this this podcast and another one called Vox Popcast. And I study pop culture media and sex and gender and race and class and representations thereof and, and things like funny books like this, though this isn't terribly funny. <laughs> I, I laughed many times reading it so that's <laughs> we will, true we will i mean <laughs> there were there were times that i laughed but I <laughs> andrew please uh give us the tour of your humble abode uh hi i'm dr j andrew demand i am a lecturer at st jerome's university and co-project lead for sequential scholars uh, i'm also the former project lead for the claremont run and thus feel very well equipped to discuss this issue which is trying its damnedest to be a claremont issue of uncanny x-men oh yeah but Perhaps, uh -huh. oddly, not at all trying to be a Claremont issue of Excalibur. Long story short, and metaphors mixed, my spidey sense is tingling on this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm very looking forward to talking with Moira, uh, to talking about Moira with you today, <laughs> Andrew. So we are joined this week by an awesome scholar who I've been looking for an excuse to meet for a while, and it's Sienna Blaze finally making it happen. The pod is exhilarated to welcome Dr. Haley Austin. Welcome, Haley. Hello, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Long time lurker. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We're looking forward to talking with you about this bodacious issue. I'll give our listeners a little bit of an idea of what you get up to, and then we'll talk more specifically about some of your research. So Dr. Haley Austin is a research and development fellow in transnational creative industries at Abertay University in Dundee, Scotland. She moved from the U.S. to Scotland in 2016 for a one-year master's in comics, that's in quotes, stayed for a PhD and is still writing comics and working in the Scottish creative industries. So Haley, we like to do comics comics origin stories when somebody is new to the pod so hit us with yours when did you start reading and falling in love with comics oh i i was a late bloomer so it was actually in university which is super late i had read one comic before that it was <laughs> it was like when i was oh i don't know maybe 10 it was like a spider-man spider-girl manga okay yeah um, which was really interesting but um my first my origin story and my first love comics wise is mouse um yeah. mm -hmm. i read it yeah i mean it just comp i thought i wanted to be an english teacher until i read mouse and then i was like these comics have something going for them uh, <laughs> I should know more about this, but I wasn't. I, I wanted to study them, so I asked all my teachers at Creighton University in Nebraska if I could write my final essays on mouse, and they were like, yes, please. So I did that, really enjoyed it. Then I applied for funding to go to the U.S. Holocaust Museum um, to do original research, got the funding, did the research, loved it, was like, I should read more of these comic books, and <laughs> looked up where I could keep studying them. First Google search was Dundee, Scotland, and here I am. <laughs> oh my goodness. Talk about following your passion. Well, uh, give our give our listeners a little bit of an idea of the kind of stuff that you usually work on. Like, what is your comic studies research usually focused on? Like, have you continued doing a lot of uh, research on sort of memoir and Holocaust comics, or has your research moved in other directions? It, it has moved in other directions. Um, so Mouse is always my first love. But then I got really into, like, Black Sad and oh, Noir. Nice 
comics. Yeah, so cool. So then I ended up doing a furry PhD. Amazing. Anthropomorphic characters because I was like, it, it was inspired by Mouse, but it kind of looked at it and I thought it was going to be about trauma. But in my second year of the PhD, toward, actually close to the end of the second, I uh, realized it was actually about genres and genre mixing and how the anthropomorphic body does that. And so I read a lot of porn. <laughs> to be 100 honest and i was like i was publicly shamed uh so i got an interlibrary loan of this huge porn book of wally wood um yeah. oh yes yeah. oh yeah yeah, I know yeah. That. Yes. Mm-hmm. yep <laughs> So I got an interlibrary loan at the Dundee University Library and uh, my first year of my PhD and usually interlibrary loan, you can just take it home, right? Normal. They were like, nah, this can't leave the library. You have to read it in a public space. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's this huge book. So I'm just like at this big table, just like, like you can hear me turning the pages of this oh big God. porn book and uh, just like, this is what I do for fun. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so honestly, after that, I was like, I'm, I'm hooked. I have humiliated myself publicly, and I'm still <laughs> interested in kind of sexuality in comics. So I did a whole intro kind of to my PhD, marking my argument was that pulp magazines um, started genre, and pulp magazines are inherently porn. So every genre that we have, these ideas of genre constraints come from pornographic magazines, essentially. So I I am a recent PhD survivor and moved on (laughs) to be a... Uh, research and development fellow at the university literally next door. Uh, I applied all around the world, moved away from Dundee, then got a job in Dundee. Oh my goodness. (laughs) At the uni next door. But um, so now I'm working mostly with video games, but every single chance I get, I bring comics back in and feminism for anyone who will listen. But I did a research trip, separately funded one for the creative industries in Sweden. And I was in Sweden for a month and just ran around video game studios, board game studios. And then I found comic studios of all these amazing feminist comics collectives that they have there. And I'm writing that up right now. So I'm enjoying so much more getting back into the comic side as much as I can. That's awesome. I mean, you're speaking our language with all of these interests, Haley, hence why we wanted to have you on the pod. <laughs> but um, can I ask you about you? Like, what is your familiarity, if any, with like the X-Men franchise? Are you coming in? Are you coming in relatively cold here? Or do you have any familiarity with this, with this side of comics? Okay, so my superhero comics knowledge is fairly limited. The female Thor was my favorite superhero until they fridged her. So X-Men, I know it mostly from the films. I have read maybe one Avengers versus X-Men, but I do know intellectually, I know the flavor of X-Men comics. I have looked at them, but I am completely cold. I did not know Excalibur was a thing. So yeah, the the aura... I I have heard of, but I've not actually experienced them before. Wow. And what an intro. <laughs> this is such an intro. I feel like I don't want to read them. I just want to flip through them. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's the correct. That's the correct response to a lot of 90s artwork. Um, 
I, I have to ask you, given all of your interests and given that the character is quite different in the X-Men movies, are you aware that Nightcrawler is a furry character or would this be new knowledge for you? <laughs> oh, I knew this from there's this interesting Twitter account I follow, uh, this woman who's like the unofficial fan club. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of her. Her name's Anna Pepper. <laughs> My work's getting out there. How good to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, I, I was like, I was, even so the panels, I was like, I've seen that panel before. <laughs> <laughs> Anna's posted this panel before. So, yeah, from you, I, like I said, longtime lurker. Uh, I did know, yes. It's not Alan Cumming. I also love Alan Cumming. Oh. Uh, shout out to Alan, who I'm He's sure great. is a, a lifelong listener. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but he, he worked in Dundee. And that's the closest I'll ever beat him. <laughs> I love him so much. I've said it many times. Absolutely killer casting for Nightcrawler. Absolutely wasted casting for Nightcrawler. No. Oh, mm. completely. He was so good. And he's only been to one Comic-Con. And it makes me sad because he was like, he never wants to do another one. And I was like, yeah. damn. Well, you know. So I'll have to find him at something else, like some literary convention <laughs> or something. <laughs> I'll find you, Alan. <laughs> oh my god okay on that note i am very anxious to get into your first impressions of this issue so let's do our issue summary and we will come back to Haley's fiery introduction to the x-men franchise i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we definitely never subject you to terrible psychophysical torture to distract us from the death of our irredeemably evil son but anyway let's start today's deadly game with a plot summary excalibur number 72 opens with the game master planning his next game it involves getting upstart Sienna Blaze to steal a CD-ROM containing the DNA of Moira McTigrett's deceased son slash reality warping threat to all existence, Proteus. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, Moira is training Excalibur using a virtual reality system designed to treat Proteus. It goes poorly. Everyone gets freaked out by their darkest fears and they need to stop the test. Moira reflects that she hopes the pending arrival of Dr. Rory Campbell will be helpful in her study of the legacy virus. Feels like we've heard that name before. Later, there's an explosion offshore. It's an oil rig up in flames with lots of people on board. Nightcrawler saves the pilots of the helicopter while Rachel puts out the fire on the rig. They quickly realize the explosion was somehow unnatural and seemingly deliberate, probably related to the person they see zooming through the air toward the Muir Island Research Station. Elsewhere, on the Isle of Lewis, the aforementioned Rory Campbell is trying to find a boat to take him to Muir Island, which is harder than it should be because everyone says the island is cursed and they don't want to go there, which, you know, not untrue and fair enough. Rory eventually secures a boat with a fistful of cash. Back on Muir Island, Sienna Blaze announces her arrival rival. The oil rig explosion was just a diversion. She's here for the CD-ROM DNA. Most 90s sentence ever. Kurt and Kitty try to teleport to Moira to help her, but Sienna senses the electromagnetic charge of Kurt's teleportation and creates an EM field to screw it up. The issue concludes with Kurt screaming in horror as he and Kitty materialize inside of solid rock. Oh my god, how will they get out of this one? So exciting! Let's launch into first impressions. We already did a little bit of that in our intros. I'm not feeling terrible about this one i did get a lot of enjoyment out of this issue i'm not sure how much of the enjoyment was intentional but so yeah Haley, first impressions Haley, tell us what you made of this comic book i am very curious so i definitely thought that the issue description would help <laughs> yeah uh, i feel like it may be more confused but that's okay so first impression <laughs> is butts yeah, yeah. there's a lot of butts. those a lot of butts and you know what some of them 
pretty good. Um, <laughs> that that is honestly hair less good, butts good. Yeah, I don't. I thought I had more. But honestly, <laughs> you're you're on top, Mav. How are you feeling about this one? I I do appreciate that. Like they're trying to bring this into the X Men fold. I I appreciate the project that is going on here. It's been 30 years, and I had to remind myself what the upstarts were. <laughs> I had to oh, go God, do yeah. a little, little, little Googling and, <laughs> and, and rereading a couple of things. And, and I went back, and I was actually reading um, X-Men Gold when you know the upstarts were introduced. And then I went back, and I was like, oh, oh yeah, this was a bad concept. This was something that I didn't care about yeah. in 1991. <laughs> Why are we doing this? And it's just, and that's how I feel about it. It's just like, I mean, if you're going to attach them and make them, you know, dig them into the universe, that's kind of neat, right? Because it was kind of weird when they did the Inferno crossover and then they just never did anything that affected any other part of the crossover whatsoever. So that was weird. But this seems like the wrong way of going about that. <laughs> this very much seems like, hey, kids love the upstarts, right? Right, kids? Right? There was a there was a trading card. You remember the trading card for the, the upstarts? That's that's how this felt. This, that, that's how much effort it seemed like was put into it. Jean Grey is in this just so she could be on the cover so that we can sell a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it, mm-hmm. it, it's just cynical decisions that were made throughout this that kind of made me go, eh, okay. So my, my initial impression was very much eh. Yeah, I'll let you do yours, Andrew. But yeah, definitely feeling that synergizing with the larger X-Men franchise going on here, which... Again, is good and bad for my enjoyment of this book, but, sure. but we'll get back to that. Andrew, how are, how are your first impressions? You already mentioned some of the Claremont stuff, yeah. but you can expand yeah. on that if you would like. Yeah, maybe. I think I want to riff on what Mav was saying a little bit, because I, I feel like I completely agree with everything Mav said. I feel like the upstarts could have been an interesting concept. The idea of mm-hmm. a group of villains who symbolize class privilege and the callousness it creates. That could be really cool, but going up against the super team that lives in the mansion and has all the fanciest tech makes that a little bit yeah. difficult. And I <laughs> I just felt like it never went anywhere. So I was kind of on board with the idea when it first started. And I was just like, please do something. Please do something. And they kind of never did. But in terms of like broad villainy, I really did enjoy seeing, you know, Fitzroy and Shinobi get punched. Uh, There was that kind of animosity built towards them. I just didn't find them super credible villains. I didn't find them imposing, Um, even though they launched... Um, Fitzroy in particular, with a massacre of canonical characters who were very good characters in many cases, and just didn't pay off for me. So I guess there's a question of execution in the upstarts, and we're certainly not seeing great execution of that concept in this issue either. Oh, no, we're very much doing like a villain of the week kind of thing here, which, you know, was like refreshing in some ways because i mean my kind of takeaway was that you know despite this being an issue very filled with fire and death it did feel like kind of like a decompression issue I mean, we have a kitchen scene an excalibur kitchen scene it's been kind a of. while i've missed it i know yeah. but mm. like I'm, I'm gonna make it happen it's 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 the closest we've had for a while to like one of these kind of quieter domestic moments that we used to enjoy so much in this book and it's weird for a variety of reasons i think it's illustrative of the particular approach to melodrama in this era like the way that this kitchen scene is very different than previous Excalibur kitchen scenes which you know (laughs) we can talk about yeah once again the artwork is like really cool and then you read the words and it is so much less (laughs) cool and it's so unfortunate because the lettering sucks and I'm not even someone who's that into lettering but it's painful and some of the art is also a bit 
inconsistent so some of it is really yeah. cool and doing like body mod stuff in a cool way and then the next page you're like that's not what a human being even looks like we're gonna we're gonna have a focus on like kind of like 90s excess in the next three or four episodes because it's a topic that very much interests all of us but you're picking up so many key points about it the way a part of the excess from this era is that fact that characters can look completely different from one page to the next page and the generous reading of that is we're modifying the bodies for expressive reasons you know having to do with dynamism and excitement and it's superhero comics and we can do that if we want to jack kirby exaggerated bodies why can't we but it depends (laughs) so depends and this is so yeah such an example of you can't just do it to do it because it doesn't work in action sequences it works when she's just standing there i don't there's no page numbers the one where the woman in red and the deep v cut is just standing there yeah i think i know the image you mean her head is on like the complete wrong part of her body And like her right boob's about to fall off. And <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, that doesn't, she's not doing something. It's not exaggerated, it just looks wrong and cringy. Yeah, and it's the same. I just realized it's the same on the next page. She's just like bent in like a backwards C. <laughs> and I don't know mm-hmm. why. Well, I mean, let me let me hit you for your insights on kind of the presence of sexuality in this kind of artwork. Like, did Woof. you find this a sexy comic book? Or did you find Ooh. this a comic book that was resistant to sexualization? Because that's a question I come to a lot when I think about excessive 90s art. Is this a sexy comic book, Haley? What's your verdict? Woof. Um, <laughs> it, I feel like half the time it's trying to be. Yeah, because whether it's trying to be is part of it, right? Is it actually trying to be or is it not trying? to be i think it is trying to be with definitely with nightcrawler like that bodacious boot is like all over this comic (laughs) as well as like all like the muscles from here to timbuktu every now and then he gets a weird face but i feel like once again you can just be like yeah sure whatever the women are that weird 90s sexy where they're like if it's a muscle group it's is it sexy maybe it's just muscly boob matter (laughs) and you're like no don't think so so i would say it's trying to be yes and it is only succeeding a quarter of the time and that is largely to do with the butts because the the boobs and the and i'm not good with muscles but whatever the muscle on the side of the boob is that they just keep showing over and over again to be like it's not all boobs it's muscle uh, is odd to me. And then in the panel after the creepy baby um, <laughs> where they're all standing and their legs are like two thirds of their body. Yeah, yeah, the legs, 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 legs. Yeah, where you're like, okay, I don't, interesting. And they're little twigs, except for Nightcrawler, who's like got some muscle on the twig. So oh, he's sorry the only guy. Yeah, well, he's the only male yeah. character. I mean, like the Games Master's there, but Kurt is the uh, the Games Master's there, and Rory is there for one page. But for the most part, Kurt is the sole male character throughout the entire book. So that's true. That didn't so, really occur to me. Yeah, yeah. I so it, it's that yeah. I have lots of thoughts about '90s artwork, which I. Mm-hmm. I mentioned briefly, I think a couple episodes ago, that like I think it is fun to make fun of Rob Liefeld. I do it quite frequently myself. Yes. That he said, it. yes. That said, Rob was doing a thing. Like he, there, there was an intentionality about Rob, 
that I don't think people realized at the time, but is very evident when you look at the people who tried to copy Rob. Like Rob takes a lot of crap for, oh, you can't draw feet. His proportions are in it. And true, right? It's not like it's not like I'm saying he's the greatest artist at all. But for the thing that Rob Liefeld does, Rob is the very best at doing the thing that he does, right? There's a you There's look at a his artwork. Signature and intentionality. Yes, yes. And you go, okay, this guy sees the world in a very weird way, but he clearly sees the world that way, as opposed to what I see here is someone trying to do the Rob Liefeld thing and also the Jim Lee thing and also the Mark Silvestri thing and not realizing that those are three distinct different people. So Ken Lashley is doing stuff, but I don't think he knows why. Like, I, like, I, like he knows he needs to show butts a lot. <laughs> Like he know, he knows that women lead with their boobs, right? He knows that men have impossible muscles, but as weird as the impossible muscles of uh, Rob Liefeld are, if you compare a bad rock to a cable to all the other people, he's mm -hmm. like, there's intentionality to it where you go, okay, that's just the weird way that Rob draws. In the same way that I wouldn't expect like the Batman the animated series art, right? Like I don't expect yeah that to look realistic that's just the bruce tim aesthetic and this is the rob liefeld aesthetic and not done correctly to where it becomes super and uncanny valley-ish i think in a way that rob's work isn't even right like it's just like there's a lot of what is going on here you said you know with the head facing entirely the wrong way like when rob does like a broke back pose it's logically consistent within the rob liefeld universe does that make sense like there's a I, like i it might not be for everybody and they're, i get why and it's not movement. not necessarily it, for me it tends to be like a kind of movement yes. with rob or or it's consistent with the way they're standing it doesn't look like they're just drawn wrong right yeah he did it on purpose yeah because <laughs> i mean so much of it we're seeing with lashley like an artist developing their style though right because i mean absolutely yeah, exactly. i see the i see those three influences there and i mean i think that's where we're coming at with some of the variation like from page to page not necessarily being productive because it's almost like his style is not consistent right like he's trying out different styles and there's like even some callbacks you can see like on one of the pages again there aren't page numbers in this issue but um one of the pages that has like a tall panel of sienna blaze standing there i think it's one of the ones we've been talking about and part of the image at the top of that page is like one of those close-up shots with like the hand on the hip and a butt anyway that's like a swipe from john Byrne in dark phoenix yeah but that's also a swipe yeah. from john Byrne in dark phoenix so i, I know oh, yeah, that exact yeah, butt <laughs> oh yes yep that's the one I've been and so about. like i mean I'm seeing stuff like that come across like it very much feels like an artist who's like learning you know what their signature style is gonna be yeah well yeah learning to draw but like yeah also like figuring out what their unique voice is gonna be because I mean again think about even the variation of like Nightcrawler's face in all of the issues that we've seen Lashley on so far it's completely different like he's still figuring it out and in a way that's almost exciting to read because he is putting a ton of passion into this I feel oh, the sure. passion mm. in some of his exaggeration here and yet definitely learning what he's doing on this comic book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is reflective of sort of um, what's happening at Marvel Comics, especially at the time and maybe DC mm -hmm. a little bit as well. We talked about the image revolution. Marvel had to repopulate its its illustrator's bullpen mm -hmm. real fast once everyone defected. In days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and in this era, you see a lot of artists who aren't polished yet uh, being given books on, on very large mm -hmm. stages. So, yeah, you're getting a ton of exactly as Anna says, just people who are experimenting, people who aren't necessarily consistent with the proportions. Like, like even Alan Davis doesn't draw like Alan Davis in the early Captain Britain comics. It takes a no. long time to master that polish. 
but those early Captain Britain comics are a lot of a lot of them are in and I mean first off it's in Marvel UK which is not as big but it's there mm. but he also has a lot of stuff that he's doing in anthologies right like two years before this Lashley is not drawing Excalibur or X Men he's drawing some Marvel Comics presents issues right like that's what they would right. have done they would have been like hey let me give you a Wolverine series if you can just give us eight pages a month for the next six months and we will you know you can own your craft that's, yeah and you can have a book in happened. like five years right and instead now he's just the artist of record for um excalibur for you know a little bit well sticking with kind of character designs and because i feel like we've gone on we've gone on the visual route with our discussion heroes so i mean let's just stay on that track but like so we have heroes and we have villains in this comic book it's a convention obviously of superhero comics to <laughs> design heroes and villains in a way that connotes heroism and villainy at the level of symbolic character design so i'm curious Haley, did that come across to you here can we tell who's a hero and a villain villain in this book yeah i would definitely say so it's down to they did the like classic mean lady like eyebrows <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like just so you know dark phoenix is like bad because look at those she's mad and ladies who are mad are bad <laughs> that's what it felt like to me but then at the same time I feel like Kurt is quite unconventional because I think his sharp I think his muscles give him away as a hero but he's quite sharp and angular anywhere that isn't those muscles which to me kind of denotes some villain for sure I mean I, I love what you're bringing up in terms of the design of Nightcrawler because I do I am fascinated by Lashley's design of him in the sense that again it feels like a lot of passion went into this design and it feels like he's drawing the character like he likes the character and we are going to mm -hmm. have a big conversation about the cover of num number 73 next week because it is a lot of cover um, so we'll, we'll focus <laughs> yeah. on his character design a little bit there I'll uh, look looking forward to that convo but um but yeah i mean he's giving kurt way more of an extreme edgy vibe than we would mm -hmm. have ever seen with an artist like alan davis or like most of the artists that had drawn nightcrawler previous to this and you can really see sort of the 90sification of the character there yeah. i mean the amount mm -hmm. of detail on the character's face like i mean i think that's what that's one of the things that's coming up in your comparison of it to the design of villains because villains usually have more lines on their face like that's usually a characteristic of villains but it's something that we saw artists like Rob Liefeld bring very much into the design of heroes too I mean the lines on faces like it's just it's like they're scarred even when they don't have scars right that's like part of the extremeness mm -hmm. of that look that's part of the way that men appeared masculine during this era so in some ways it's a masculinization of the character but you have that interesting thing that happens with the hyper excess of the 90s where you know Haley you're reading it as kind of intentional sexualization of the character I'm of two minds about it because in some ways I find the exaggerations here to be kind of repelling of like an accessible gaze but in some ways through that excess they're very sort of encouraging of like other gazes that aren't mine which you know we always want to be careful to talk about because like yeah like the butt and the thighs and the thickness of Kurt in this comic book I know we have talked to fans of Lashley like who really like his design of the character so I know that that is appealing to somebody so yeah I am curious about about that sexualization of the character I think it's something we're going to have to talk about more as we see a little more of it yeah i i also was thinking so i found the page numbers page 21 which is where he's 
going to the Isle of Lewis and being like, haha, you're a superstitious old man because um, <laughs> you're in Scotland. Um, as well as on page 22, which is where Sienna Blaze kind of comes in. But to me, there are like a couple, if not intentional, then definitely like Freudian slips. Okay, yeah. Um, because when he's about to get on this ferry, on this boat, he's holding a map. His dick is in that map. Like, <laughs> I'm trying not to read too much into it, but every time I look there, I'm like, that is a bulge. <laughs> they just, he put a bulge on the map, and then it looks like they almost edited it back over the top. I have no idea. And then <laughs> to me, the next page when Sienna Blaze comes in, it's very yawning. And that moment where she's coming in, in that it's, I don't know, once again, it could be me reading too much into this, but I feel like accidentally or otherwise, it is very sexual. Yeah, I mean, oh God, I'm just, I am fascinated by that in like the 90s excess because in some ways, you know, the ways that this era venerated creator individuality, it reminds you of something like under underground comics, right? Where you're supposed to yes. unleash your id and just see what comes out and spill yourself all over the page. And yes, the sexual connotations of me saying it that way are intentional because that's very much what underground comics are about. And, you know, when I think about the excess here, I think I agree with you that, you know, there's a lot of symbolism that spills out and it's not that it's super conscious it's almost like it's spilling out because you're just supposed to be drawing with desire you know and what desire means it can mean many different things but you're supposed to be drawing with like an excitement and an implied eroticism but not necessarily like an object-oriented eroticism just like an eroticism that this entire space is supposed to be kinetic and exciting and pulse pounding and all of those things have an implied eroticism to it that I think is part of what can be really exciting about 90s excess you can see me getting excited as I'm talking about it and yet it's something that's hard to pin down because it's almost like vibes right like this comic has like vibes of eroticism other than like a couple of images of the women images that I would put to as like as, as definite pinups it's more just like mm -hmm. the entire vibe of the thing yeah no there's definitely pinup moments and that's definitely where I agree you can see a lot of the passion coming through but yeah no that is really interesting I I completely agree. It's it's in trying to capture that passion, it turns it lends itself well to other readings as well. Well, we already talked a little bit about kind of the, the narrative context of some of these villains, but uh, I wanted to talk just like a little bit about melodrama as well. And then I want to talk about Moira specifically. <laughs> so we'll get we'll get back to her. But I mean, I was really struck by the melodrama in this issue. And Andrew was already talking about it as like trying to do Claremont. But like, mm -hmm. oh my God. Like, I mean, when we talk about something being like melodramatic, like, what do we mean? Like, what moments kind of particularly stood out to us? And I, I've got one that I will mention if nobody else does, because I laughed so hard reading it. But I'll give you a first crack at it, Ailey. Like, moments of melodrama that particularly stood out to you. Characters feeling emotions. It's a very emotional. For me, dang it, it's Moira. It's when Sienna Blaze comes in and they're like, Moira is not generally the type of woman who needs saving. Mm -hmm. And me, knowing Moira for one issue, I'm like, a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's I'm put like, in a lot of situations here. Yeah, I'm like, Moira is your excuse for a lot of things. I can tell. <laughs> 
she wrote me the wrong way, so it's it's gonna be Moira, but also Demon Baby has to be up there. Yeah. <laughs> because that is some like super melodramatic, but also oh, I'm gonna say the wrong thing. Uh train spotting like vibes. Oh, okay, mm. yeah. <laughs> Which is for those who don't know, it's a well, it was a book written in Scots based in Edinburgh about um, addicts and them having one of the absolute scariest bits of the film mm-hmm. is when this baby like walks on the ceiling and it's really <laughs> creepy. Mm-hmm. I recall uh, this. I recall this. The two creepiest babies, the train spotting baby and the Ali McNeil behaving yeah. baby. Oh my <laughs> yeah, God. So I was wondering if you were thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So this one's up there. <laughs> Okay, other melodramatic moments that stood out to us, and I'll, I'll give you a chance to sound off on it, Andrew, like moments in which this comic maybe was trying so hard to do Claremont that, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the big one that stands out for me, because it's, it's, it's bonkers compared to the last issue, was Rachel, uh, mm-hmm. and the idea that her worst fear is that her mom doesn't love her. We just mm-hmm. resolved that conflict in the last issue of this series uh so to have it surface here as an ongoing thing is deeply melodramatic uh just again trying to reconnect rachel to a pain that she had gotten past and as we've discussed before that character you got to stop doing that you got to move her forward once you close the loop move on but they just keep re-traumatizing her with the same things that she keeps getting over and it gets really frustrating and again diminished returns i want to be like claremont would have done a through line with the character better but at the same time he was very guilty of doing this exact same thing to rachel end of grace <laughs> yeah but like i mean we also talked about it in the context of excalibur right you know like the ugh. yeah just after warlord yeah yeah we have like kind of this happened with racial multiple times in multiple dimensions and we complained at the time about not moving the character forward but you know excalibur was being mm. a weird book around that time so i want to forgive some yeah. of it how about you mav melodramatic moments that particularly stood out all of it uh, <laughs> all of it mm-hmm. it's to me, there's a concept with what the melodramatic is, and this is moving away from being a comic scholar into being literary cultural theory scholar for a bit. We use that term melodramatic to mean bad in a lot of a lot of ways in the way at which melodrama writers don't mean it to be bad what they mean it to be is the ultimate in expressiveness right like we are really tr- sort mm-hmm. of investigating trauma invest like there can be good melodrama problem is that yeah. it is so often used poorly that we've you know we say don't be so melodramatic that's an insult right like it, it becomes it's not meant to be at least the concept isn't meant to be insulting but since melodrama is always so poorly done it becomes that and this is another instance of it becoming that right because i don't know what i'm investigating i don't know why rachel is rachel has trauma here other than the fact that ashford seems to think that trauma is the only aspect of rachel's character ashford thinks that being sad about gene and scott is the only thing there is to rachel's character why is Kitty hung up on Peter when literally the last arc was resolving that? And the answer is because there's nothing more to her character other than being sad. Like now, it's possible that they were writing this 
before, you know, because of the crunch that we talked about, like they were replacing everybody. This could have been written before they had a chance to read the last arc, right? Because it would have been a different team, but it doesn't excuse it because I'm reading them in order, right? Like, and so to me, it feels repetitive and to me, it feels empty. And, you know, Moira is dealing with the trauma of over Proteus. That was a decade ago. Literally, those are comics from 10 years ago for me as a reader in real time. Why does she? I mean, now she cares because in real life, if a mother loses her child, sure, she might have trauma and stress over it. But for the reader, this is not fresh. It's it's a callback to a story that probably most readers, you know, who you know, your average comic book life fans lifespan is like five years. So like it's a callback to something that happened before most of the current readers were reading and they don't know the story and it's not meaningful in the same way right like there's so much of that that happens here because it's just like well what am i supposed to take from this other than you know people have problems because they're superheroes and that that's what's going on here so it just feels so heavy and I don't know what to focus on in the exact same way as the artwork. We've been talking about the artwork being, you know, the 90s excess. The writing is excessive. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. know what I'm supposed to look at. I don't know what I'm supposed to concentrate on. Why is Kurt sad? I don't know. You know, because, you know, <laughs> like, it's just like, that's what I get out of this. It's just like, yeah, you have trauma because you're a superhero and being a superhero is rough, I guess. Well, I mean, I feel like that's quite represented by, you know, the quote unquote nightmares or fears that each of the characters experience. You know, this makes no sense. Like Rachel experiences like an emotional trauma. Kurt experiences a physical trauma. Kitty experiences a mix of like physical and emotional trauma. And it almost feels like these choices were made just because that would be, I don't know, like the most fun to draw or just like an instance of dynamism that doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. make sense with the mechanism that we're employing here, but it's just, we thought this would be cool, right? Wouldn't it be like cool right. if Kurt teleported into a wall? What would happen? Does it make sense with the premise? Not really, but it's cool, right? We talked a little bit about Harris, like his theory on writing is he's tr on, or on editing really, but he doesn't want the books to be what we want them to be. And that's fine, you know, cause I'm not the editor of X-Men, right? So like, I, like, I get why he gets to make that decision, but it does become weird in that I feel like the thing that he wants it to be, he's also not doing well, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, like I don't understand if you want to be doing Youngblood, which is a choice, you know, then there's more to being cool than just going through the motions of cool. And that's what this feels like. It feels like yeah. through the motions of cool, like the sexiness, even, you know, Youngblood would have just straight up had people in bed together. Like, that's the thing that they would have done. Even something better, Titans, right? Like, the Titans would have had people in bed together, but with a point to the story. And this does neither of those, thi those things. This tries to be safe and do innuendo, but the innuendo is not obvious to the point that, like, even Anna has to go, you know, is this sexy? I don't know. You know, like, <laughs> like, like you're not, I mean, you're not making a joke, right? Like, it's just. I don't know. It's just kind of a thing. No, you seriously, know? yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about the book. It it doesn't know what it wants to be, 
it just knows that it wants people to buy it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, my, my other melodramatic moment before we before we end with a bit of a combo about Moira was the, the scene with Rachel and the porridge. It's like they're just making porridge and then she immediately goes to the well. Oh, the yeah, smell yeah. of porridge reminds me of being in this horrid pens. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> like that really came out of nowhere and i mean that's i think to me representative of what we're talking about when we talk about bad melodrama like you're just going to the most extreme emotion in response to the most mundane thing with like no modulation between those two points and it's very shoehorned in in the sense that we need to have rachel say this thing about ahab so that we can introduce rory who spoiler is ahab or he will be and this is gonna be a true line of this comic book yeah anyway <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk about that more in the future. But anyway, that's why we have to Can have that sign posted. But it's... Just briefly, because we're going to talk about this a lot, because we're going to spend the next, I don't know, 47 years build up, building up to is or is not Rory Ahab. But he obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. is, right? Like, they yes. didn't... It, 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 this would be more of a thing, because the book treats it like, ooh, it's a mystery. Do What's going to happen? And I'm like, no, you just drew Ahab. Like, it's it's, it's clearly the same guy. And, and, it, and it frustrates me to no end that they're like, oh, this is odd. Who is this mysterious stranger? Yeah. I mean, I knew who it was. I... <laughs> This is my first issue, and I was like, yeah, that's that guy. Mm-hmm. You, you can't make any of the faces the same, but I can tell it's that guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's talk about Moira because I want to get I want to get Haley's thoughts on Moira and I want to do just like a little bit of framing Moira. We can return to some combos about her because obviously she's going to be a staple of the book for basically the rest of the series. Oh, you poor things. <laughs> oh well. Okay. There's Moira is a complicated character. Yeah. There's better. Mm-hmm. There's better Moira comic. But um, so she's been okay. around for a long time. Introduced, I believe, in Claremont's first issue, uh, X Men '96, back in uh, back in 1975. So. So, I mean, Andrew, you chose Moira for the header image on Claremont Run. And I've, mm-hmm. I don't, have I asked you why in the past? Because this is your opportunity <laughs> to tell me why. Because it was a really cool image of someone looking at data with a bunch of cool glasses on. Okay. Um, so, scientist. Scientist yeah. ethos. But what is her role in the X-Men franchise? If you had to give somebody the the Moira yeah. elevator pitch, sell Haley on Moira, Andrew. Why is she uh, an interesting character? I'm going to try Haley. So, so Moira is considered the archetype of what's referred to in the Marvel bullpen as the Claremontian woman. Uh, and Claremont used the term himself as well, which is defined by Claremont as any woman who won't hesitate to machine gun you to death at the drop of a hat. Um, it was a pretty important turn for comics because the background characters who weren't superheroines rarely got to have that kind of violent attitude uh, or capability she was also identified as a pulitzer prize or no sorry nobel prize winning scientist at a time when i think seven women had won the nobel prize in science uh, in that time period yeah and and it's just like she's characterized as a very capable scientist Mm -hmm. and um uh, someone who juggles maternity and her calling in ways that are not just broad stereotypes of nurturing there's a lot of really cool back history to the character uh also interesting to see a cultivation of a background character to that level of depth something claremont experimented with a lot now that said i don't think a lot of that's here i i think it's trading on that as best it can but this moira is characterized as just the sad mom who lost her child and is obsessed forever 
with that. Her capability is questionable. Um, and she's not as interesting as a character here. Okay, that makes more sense. Well, and yeah, I mean, and any readers of X-Men comics know, obviously, that uh, many different things have subsequently happened with the Moira character, yeah. um, which we will not yeah. get into here. But if I you're into that sort of thing, though. like retro sort of interesting yeah. in terms of the later retconning of that character, but that's something we'll talk about in future. I don't really want to talk about it today. Well, <laughs> I think it's telling that Haley, I mean, so because of the way this is written, Haley didn't buy into the, when it, when they make the comment that, you know, Moira's not usually a damsel in distress, yeah. that's correct. Like, in fact, the character of Moira is defined by she is a woman who is not a damsel in distress. That's all she is in many ways, right? Is that she is just like Andrew said, she's the badass, right? You can be a scientist and a badass and a lady. This is possible. That's Moira in a nutshell. Then reading this, Haley seemed to, you know, not knowing who she is, just from the way that it's written, you didn't buy that at all. You, I mean, you said, you know, you just assume that this probably does happen to you all the time. And that's kind of a, to me, that feels like it's a flaw in the writing, right? Because I, because I do feel like, like, it, like I get why you, why you didn't buy it because it's just like, you're told not shown. She just says that. Yeah. It's a hundred percent that because she's like, I didn't do anything. It's not my fault that whatever's going on is going on. And then the <laughs> end of that page, she's like, the wee band broke my heart. <laughs> I purposely did a bad Scottish accent because it's written horribly. And you're saying and, that's not realistic dialect. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then she goes into tragic backstory. And, yeah. and I'm just like, okay. It didn't read as, definitely didn't read as capable machine gun wielding badass. It was, to me, background lady who I could only sometimes distinguish from Kitty. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of whining. And I was like, oh, okay. Demon baby. That's distracting. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't have more on that point, but she, she kind of faded into the background and then they're like, we've got to help Moira. And I was like, yeah, cause I bet Moira needs saved all the damn time. She just whines and nothing's her fault. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> I, I mean, you might be pleased to know she has become a villain in the X-Men franchise in recent years, but um, again, I'm not talking about it. We'll talk about that more in, in, in some future issues, but um... <laughs> well, okay. I mean, some of the recent stuff uh, is yeah. I thought you were going to say but... fridged, so villain works for me. <laughs> I mean, she's basically a robot that steals people's skins and wears them now, so... <laughs> oh, she's that Moira! Okay, she's iconic. Yeah. <laughs> she is that, she is that. But anyway, again... She... So, my friend reads X-Men and was explaining it to me, and I did not realize this was that Moira. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same, same person. She was dead for a while, she got, but she's better. She's dead for a while and got retconned as a mutant and things got wild. Um, but anyway, again, it creates some interesting stuff when you're rereading this era with Moira and being like, can I figure out in my brain which lifetime of hers this is and how it fits in with the current continuity? And either 
that's going to be something that delights you or something that you find either uninteresting or infuriating. Like when I was looking up Moira's entry on the Marvel wiki to like get her origin, like her debut, she has like a temporary reality number assigned to her. She doesn't have like, she's not 616. She only has a temporary reality number, which a footnote explains applies to characters who are in a state of temporal flux and we don't know which reality they specifically apply to at this point. And you know, that was just like, wow, superhero comics. This is something that's either gonna fire up your brain and you're gonna be like, I wanna know more about that, or you're you're gonna throw the comic <laughs> across the room and, and, and maybe never read comics again. Anyway, uh, that's a, a short, a very, very short primer on Moira. But I have to ask you, Haley, like you brought up Scottish stereotypes like a few times already, but like, I'd love to hear you comment on that a little bit more. I love that we are speaking to you in Scotland when we have like the debut of Moira in this comic book. So yeah, I mean, how did you feel about the depiction of Scotland in this comic book? Did anything come across as authentic? Was everything stereotypes? Which stereotypes are at play here? Nothing was authentic they yeah. googled some names <laughs> yeah and the stereotypes you get uh old old people being uh really superstitious which I, but it's a really common scottish stereotype uh that they like money so it when he's like what if i doubled the rental i was like yeah. uh-huh. paying him off for the for the boats and it's like oh a stranger in a strange land that's pretty normal scottish wise what bums me out is that an attempt is made with moira speaking scots every now and then mm. and then they completely drop it mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. even in her in her last panel sienna blaze what do you want you'll be doing that over my dead body i can tell you right now that is not what a scottish woman would say if she was surprised there would be a lot more expletives (laughs) (laughs) uh, they don't say over my dead body they just that's not phrasing that they use but there was one where she keeps saying dinner oh Oh, yeah yeah. dinner can what you're saying i didn't do anything i just like they just looked up words but they didn't use them consistently so honestly the only stereotype they didn't have in here was not those people not understanding scots yeah (laughs) and honestly it might be in there and my brain just for my sanity just like cut it out of there yeah copycat i think that's another copycat in claremont because so the (laughs) when claremont made the team international the way that he portrayed international was every character had three words from their home language that they just sprinkled in every once in a while like so like you know you'll say nine if, if you're kurt you got nine mine got and my god that's it yeah Always <laughs> mine got. Yep, yep. Those, those are the three terms in all other ways kurt speaks perfect american english he just got mm-hmm. he just has those three words and then colossus is the same thing you know just throw a die in every once in a while you know or mm-hmm. or, or a comrade or a tovarish we're done yeah. that's it right rain is the same way rain is uh, moira's adopted daughter and she just you know every once in a while says dine for and that's it and other than that it's like it's a sprinkling of language that never comes across as authentic and yet like i guess i've been i've been reading x-men comics for 40 years so i'm just used to it now you know <laughs> like because like the same thing with southern accent is just like you know cannonball the and, and rogue have the um for i'm uh-huh. but they have no other traces of accent whatsoever it's just that you know sugar <laughs> that kind of thing and let's yeah, not sugar. let's not t- let's not touch gambit's accent that's the whole other mind oh game. god yeah yeah i was when i read Faye, 
so when she's like pensively looking at the computer and it's like how does it feel to be having permanent house guests apart Faye the tiny research term that <laughs> come and go anyway Faye I was like oh that's pretty Scottish and then she goes oh and I was like oh nope <laughs> <laughs> immediately after that I was like oh it's just somebody that so close grandmother heard a Scottish person talk once. The other thing was them saying that in Muir, whatever, there's no place just called Muir. Muir is like, they attach it to other words. But anyway, in Muir, they have this great internet connection. And I was like, this is the 90s. Um, no, they do not. <laughs> there it is, yeah. The intruder has been coolly tracked by Muir Island's sophisticated computer net. I was like, no. <laughs> That Shire technology, hand-weave it away. Yeah, it's it's space alien technology. Yeah, space alien technology. That would make sense. And superstitious people who don't want to sell you a boat. And lost lots of mist and fog. That part is true. (laughs) 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 But uh, yeah, no, there were... It hit, for me, on the... It hit a lot of wrong notes. And I think I'm sensitive to it. So that's probably part of the reason I noticed it. Because in Scotland, they are trying to get things in the Scots dialect. So they've got Tintin in Scots, which is really cool mm. and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it just struck me. Yeah, no, that's incredibly fair. All right, let's go around and do some final thoughts about this one. Just give everybody a chance to... to... <laughs> hit on something that we maybe didn't get a chance to talk about because we've covered a lot of bases in this in this episode but i'm sure there's some moments that we could still could still highlight so i'll come to you first andrew anything from this issue that you wanted to spotlight that we didn't get a chance to talk about uh two just quick things um the first one is um rachel at one point when the the oil rig is blowing up says people thoughts near death overexposure burnt drowning so much pain and kitty's response is and I was looking forward to an evening in, which is way out of character for Kitty in terms of her capacity yeah. for human empathy. Um, and the other one, well. Kitty Pride went up to sleep like Peter Parker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then the other one was just um, pushing against Haley very slightly. I kind of like the way Lashley um, renders Rachel. I-, I like the musculature. Mm. I agree with everything Haley said. And there's that one shot that's just a pure butt shot that I don't love. But I like seeing Ray with muscles because I think that does a lot in terms of requeering her character after she's been homogenized and normalized so much over the last few issues. Mm. Um, I-, I think showing her in that heroic capacity is also a nice change from some of the illustrations, not necessarily Davis, uh, but some of the other characters we saw who made her look very um, extremely slender, like gaunt, um, where here she looks powerful which i really like oh yeah we're gonna come back just because some of those points in the next issue where we see some interesting body mod stuff happening with rachel but yeah go ahead Haley. yeah just on page 20 i really did like how muscular she was in that one where she kind of she bends in that like c shape and it, her foot goes through the gutter that i did really like i thought she was very muscular and it was very powerful yeah my first skim was that it was villainous but i think it's because it was so powerful but yeah so i i do take your meaning yeah and it's inconsistent so i think we could be both right here because there's other images that i look at and i'm like yeah that's just a barbie doll yeah yeah i mean that's the thing it gets us right back to that you know like there are some moments and images here that i enjoyed too but then again it's inconsistent kind of page to page lashy's still figuring out his thing mav final thoughts from you a couple of them one is really quick which is you 
you joked about this, um, or actually we didn't joke about it because we did it at the beginning. So the cover of this calls the comic Crucible of Fear, and then the comic Flash page calls it Oh Sienna, which is a much worse title. I always love when <laughs> comics do that, where they have like, oh, yeah. well, we're just going to give it two titles. And in this case, I believe that the Crucible of Fear on the cover just wins out as a superior title. It is clearly better. This isn't, it's not, it doesn't make any sense. There's nothing Crucible-ish about this comic other than the fact that you know it they just wanted to have a couple of phoenixes on the cover fighting each other which again is just one page with which isn't real and i i just i always find it interesting when you know when a comic does that particularly when the cover is just designed to sell a book without any faith in the writer whatsoever <laughs> because they're like this they're like it's yeah. almost going we know this isn't a very good story but look look at this flash page you're interested now aren't you kids so that was yeah. one thing um the other thing which is and i, and I, I do want to praise lashley as well because i mentioned it briefly last episode which was as i said it was the debut of my favorite uh, of kitty's regular costumes this is the in-story debut there's no explanation as to why she's dressed like cyclops she just is and frankly, the outfit works for. Her. It's a look that she keeps more or less for the next couple of decades. I always find it important that Kitty wears this costume because we have reached the point in Excalibur where Kitty is clearly an adult. She is not a high school student anymore. The thing of how old is she? She's at least 18. And she's going to be at least 18 for the rest of, uh, of Excalibur. And, you know, fine. And the reason I find her costume to be important is because it is more than the rest of the team. It is very much designed to be evocative of the classic X-Men uniform, which matters because Kitty, from her introduction, her thing has always been, no, I'm not a baby. I don't want to wear the uniform. How can I make this my own? Like, can I make the all the aerial costumes, the sprite costumes, eventually the shadow cat costumes are always a I'm trying to get away from being, you know, in this JV outfit, <laughs> which is um, which is like how she treated mm -hmm. it. And then all of a sudden now Kitty's an adult. And the one thing that she's going to do is more than any other X-Man for the next two decades, she will be the one character who routinely returns to i want to be in an outfit that screams part of the x-men team and that's and and that's what i that's what i love about the outfit the way lashley draws it you know there's good things and bad things i have mixed the feelings on the thongishness of it i will say that like he has equal opportunity because he draws kurt that way too like they both have yeah, the um, the yeah. thong inspired underwear so i'm fine with it but i just love that she is finally wearing that outfit and it's the and this is the comic that it happens in. I want to just give lip service to the to the fact that many fans hate 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 this costume, and I'm yep, a bit of an agnostic <laughs> about it. So it's maybe going to be something that we'll return to. But I think a lot mm -hmm. of fans don't like the genericness of it, you know, because the individuality of her costumes was such a big point for her. But you're selling me on it, Mav. Like mm -hmm. you're selling me on it as well as anybody could. Yeah. I was gonna say this was one of my favorite page layouts. The, the one with Kitty going through the fire and stuff. It was just really pretty and very pit, like her first panel walking through is very kind of pinup. And I didn't realize, I just thought it was her kind of classic outfit. So that's, that is cool to me. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. I did you, not know You would that think now. so if you've never read any, because there's no recognition that she changed outfits. 
It's just it like she wears it in this as though it's been her costume all along. And no, this costume has appeared for exactly one panel on the last page of last issue with no explanation whatsoever. It very much it looks kind of like Cyclops's current outfit in continuity. Yeah. That's it. And it's just but there's no recognition that she's changed costumes whatsoever. Where did where did this come from? Mm, it's just what she has from now on. I mean, yeah, I had a couple of little ones. Like, okay, so <laughs> there were a lot of times in this comic where there were jokes or just like the ways that people were talking, where it was just trying to go for something, but it's just not how a human being talks. And I mean, examples of Moira are one of those things. But I was also very baffled by this joke of like, so Kurt says near the beginning of this comic, you know, oh, teleporting to wherever, not a problem for the man who put the B in Banff. And it sounds yeah. like something, but like, I don't know. <laughs> Just like, if you're going with the acronym of that, then the B would be bad. <laughs> and then if you're going with the colloquial meaning of like a B, which I don't think was really current slang in 1993, but I'm not sure, then it would be like, he's the person who put the bitch in BAMF, which is very funny, but probably not what was intended, but it stood out to me regardless. Um, I didn't get Trying it for all. something. I didn't make any sense. So, I don't think so the acronym goofy. matters either, but yeah, anyway. I Anyway. I think it's. I think this is supposed to sound cool, and it doesn't. It's. It's one of those things that fell flat. It's like the P and Pow, the Kathump and yeah, the K and Like, what are you talking about? But again, this one's particularly confusing since, again, I don't know that that was super current in 1993, but in retrospect, no. BAMP is an acronym, so it just is a confusing line. Anyway, um, there was that, uh, and the other thing was like, oh God, I hated Kitty's like nightmare with Colossus attacking her and trying mm. to strangle her. I just this was bad and like we talked a lot about the kitty and colossus relationship in the last issue but having this go to her yeah as andrew as andrew believes it was a good issue um but yeah having this go to the well of him just like reaching out and assaulting her i just please yeah. no i'm going to ignore that this happened i don't really want to talk about it other than to say it's very unpleasant and i wish that it hadn't happened oh and curtain the chair uh <laughs> was great i did like that little moment no he cannot sit in the chair quote unquote <laughs> normally he will never be able to do so and i do love that about him that was a nice touch um Haley, it's coming to you to wrap up this comic book what is your final word on this one anything that you want to talk about we didn't get a chance to talk about or any ideas summarizing the experience that was your introduction to the x-men i hope that you have survived <laughs> i have one word and it's butts <laughs> <laughs> I started and I will end with butts because I am still shooketh. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, Haley, that's very appropriate for your introduction to the X-Men franchise. <laughs> My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent night who fought with fairness and grace, was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. 
So we will wrap things up there. Haley, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for joining us to make this episode that much radder. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what work or projects or writing or anything else would you maybe like to spotlight for our listeners that they should be checking out? Oh my goodness. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Haley, H-A-I-L-E-Y-J, just the letter J, Austin with an I. Uh, Over here, I do get asked like Jane and I'm like, no, like Stone Cold Steve. um, Yeah. So Austin like Stone Cold Steve. You can find me on Twitter. Yeah, I think that's a good place. I do post more about comics uh, on there. And then if you're interested in my thoughts on Jane Foster Thor, I have a couple chapters uh, available on her and fetish and kind of female superhero stuff. And yeah, I've got just a bunch of comics. So yeah, start with Twitter and... (laughs) and, uh, And if you're interested in theory, you can read a bit about why I get sad when I read <laughs> women's superhero comics. Mm, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll throw up some links to your writing in our show notes and on Twitter, Haley. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and thank, thank you. you thank you so much again for, for lending your insights to this issue. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm ecstatic. I'm so glad I was on here. So glad this is my recorded first attempt at X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> for, preserved for, for posterity. <laughs> So next, Things Stay Rad as a short-haired lady with wraparound shades tries to steal a CD to get some DNA. That's right, Sienna's sticking around for Excalibur number 73. Memories are made of this, and we've got an excellent returning guest who's all set to talk about excess. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another very bodacious conversation thank you Haley, for sighing at sienna with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out Amazing. i also love that you said bodacious and I'm still looking at this giant bomb on this. <laughs>